0: and I began to reread Jesus' promises about prayer, and they're, they're absurd. I mean, Jesus says over and over, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Some version of that, like 12 times. The power that he's promising in prayer, it's wild.
1: Happy New Year and welcome to our very first episode of 2022 on the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. I hope that the Christmas season with your friends, family, and church was full of peace and joy and rest. We are so looking forward to this upcoming year here at CCLN. In December, our team took the time to pause and reflect on the year that's behind us now, and there was just so much to celebrate. And thank God for, from all sorts of pockets across Canada, we reflected on really story after story of God raising up leaders, connecting pastors and churches with one another, pastors growing in common conviction and love for God, really Jesus building his church as he said he would. And it's filled us with gratitude looking back and real grounded hope looking forward. One quick story that comes to mind as we reflected, this one's really cool. Last month, we shared a story on our channels about the 403 Network in Calgary, a youth network bringing pastors and churches together uh, to do really great work across their city. Currently, over 40 churches are a part of this network working to see God's kingdom come together where they are. Some of you might know of networks like this in your area. There's the 604 Network in Vancouver, 780 Network in Edmonton, and the 204 Network in Winnipeg. Now, this is what's extra cool. After we shared the story, Multiple pastors ended up reaching out and getting connected to those leading these networks with the goal of launching similar ones in their regions, like literally pastors inspired by the unity in other places, deciding to connect with other churches for the common good of the cities and regions they love. It was so special to see and to hear about this happening. So here's the call to you. We want to hear more stories about what God is doing in your community At CCLN, we are committed to telling the story of the kingdom and church in Canada, which is only made possible by you on the ground, relaying to us what God is doing in your church and in your community. There is so much good work going on, and if you have something to share, please reach out over Instagram or email us at contact at CCLN.ca. Okay, this week we are kicking off the new year with an amazing conversation with Tyler Staten. Tyler's the lead pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, where he joined the team as John Mark Comer stepped back. And previously, he served as co-founder and the lead pastor of Oaks Church in Brooklyn. Tyler's also the author of Searching for Enough and is currently working on a second book, this one on the topic of prayer, which Jason and Tyler touch on in this conversation. In the interview, the two of them discuss the revivalist hunger that grew in their middle school years. They talk about Tyler ridding himself of the idols of his city through an adapted version of the Nazarite vow. That was absolutely fascinating. And they talked also about prayer as a priority. It was inspiring and helpful to hear from Tyler. We hope you enjoy our conversation with him.
2: Well, Tyler, I'm really, really thankful for your time today. Talk to me, man. How is life from New York going to Portland?
0: It's great. Uh, It's Incredibly different in some ways, and super familiar in others. Um, we, you know, I, I think any city feels tiny if you move from New York City, uh, unless mm. you're going to London or some, you know, some other global hub. There's significantly more people in New York City than there are in the the state of Oregon here in the U.S. So it's um, it definitely. I think I was fearful that it would it would feel like I was moving to a small town or something and what mm. I've discovered is that uh, a lot of my life is actually the same like I mm. still cycle uh, to and from work every day I still walk to get a cup of coffee every once in a while I still uh, get to eat good food and get to live in a place with culture and I still have there's still people doing crazy things on the sidewalk everywhere. Mm. So (laughs) I know it sounds weird, but uh, like the weird grit of a city makes me feel at home. I think it's from living Mm. in New York for 12 years, you know, the whole of my adult life post-university. And so now, you know, I, I remember vividly the first... I moved to Portland the first night that I was here. I was walking, taking a walk in the park across the street from my home. And there was people with headphones on doing a silent dance party. And I was just like, <laughs> yeah, baby, I'm home. Here we You're are. Home. Oh, yep. that's
2: so good. Um, I don't know the origin of your ministry story. I'd love to hear, like you said 12 year, twelve years ago, you moved to New York. How did mm-hmm. you find yourself in New York and in ministry?
0: Uh, I... I had an incredibly formative experience when I was 13. Um, I, I think it is my true salvation experience. or I'm not really sure. It's probably, you know, I think in the, the Pauline work out your salvation, I think it was like a second conversion experience. Uh, I prayed to receive Christ when I was eight years old with my mom, and I actually really meant it. I was really dealing with the mm. fact of uh, that what I intended uh, for good, sometimes hurt people. And I was genuinely troubled by that. Um, and wow. my mom was like, oh, there's a name for that that disease. Uh, it's called sin. And, and I prayed and had a real experience, got baptized by my uncle at our church. Um, and then uh, when I was 13, my youth pastor issued a challenge to me. So what do you think God would do in the lives of your friends if you prayer walked a circle around your middle school, which I don't know what you mm. what that's called in Canada, but I was 13. So if you prayer walked a yeah. circle around your, your public school every day uh, this summer. And I just thought, well, some mm. I was intending to avoid school throughout summer break, but my older brother just turned 16. So he was down to drive anywhere for any reason. You know, just got a car and a license for the first time. So that summer, I was really intrigued by that. And that summer, I, I went to my middle school every single day with my wow. school directory in hand. Because this was in the time in history when they gave you everyone's phone number and address. Which, looking back, was just bizarre. But so And, and I prayer walked a circle around my school, and I talked to Jesus and I asked him mm. to come and meet my friends because uh, I didn't have any friends that believed the wild stuff that I believed, and uh I believe that I met Jesus that summer, and I fell in love with mm. him prayer walking by myself around a public middle school so fast forward a little bit. My family moves uh states I went to high school in Tampa, Florida, and um nearing the end of high school, I really wanted to go into vocational ministry, but I thought I would be uh, like living in a village among an unreached people group in some very remote part of the world, maybe digging wells somewhere or potentially in an office building working for a nonprofit doing social good. I never imagined I would stand in front of people and preach sermons. Um, Mm. And I don't know why I never imagined that. I guess it never intrigued me that much or got my attention. Or maybe the people that I admired were often, you know, the annual missions conference when someone would come in with crazy stories from the bush. And I would just think, I want a life like that. But I also got really freaked out because people would always talk about like a, a call to ministry, kind of like they talked about a salvation moment, you know? And I thought, I guess I'm supposed to have some kind of second experience to go into vocational ministry where I'm at church camp and the you know there's a moment in worship or something where I break down weeping and realize that I'm called to vocational ministry. And I hadn't had anything like that. Mm. And I talked to my senior pastor of the church that my family went to because I was now applying to colleges. And what I was most interested in studying was the Bible. And I didn't know if I was allowed to because I hadn't had a second call. And so I was articulating this to him. And I was like, how do you know if you're called to ministry? And he said something so helpful. He just said, if you can't imagine yourself doing anything else. Mm. And I was like, oh, great. That's how I feel. Um, So I went to a school in Chicago called Moody Bible Institute because I was terrified to go somewhere where I couldn't have like no people that weren't Christians um because i never had a predominantly i'd never been in a predominantly christian environment so i visited one bible mm. college and it was in a rural area and i was like oh no this could be weird <laughs> you know this i'm going to be in a bubble and my family i i didn't have anyone in my family history in vocational ministry and so my dad said well i've heard of this school called moody bible institute it's in downtown chicago so you could definitely like work a job off campus and that kind of stuff if you went there And I went there and I thought, man, they got some wild rules up in this place, but it is in fact in downtown Chicago. So let's go for it. Um, And then straight out of Bible college, uh, I was hired in quotations because I was offered the opportunity to move to New York City and start a youth ministry for an upstart church plant. That at that point was called Origins Church that went through several church names, as many church plants do. And I was given the gracious offer of raising my own support for two years. And if I produced a youth ministry that was sustainable and the church had done well, two years later, they would start paying me a meager salary after that. And the pastor, the founding pastor of that church plant was a guy named John Tyson, who is also the youth pastor that challenged me to pray around my middle school when I was 13 and wow. is now a close friend of mine and a peer in ministry. So John is 10 years older than me, but you wow. know, when, when you're 13, someone who's 23 seems like a sage. So, mm. so that's who he was in mm. my life then. And then I got to learn under him as a youth pastor for a little while. Um, I planted a youth ministry in, in, low income, among the low income housing projects in lower Manhattan. Uh, so it was a youth ministry that was started as outside of a church and then became a part of this church plant. And mm. it was entirely among a first generation immigrant population living below the poverty line. Uh, there, was a, there was, no, there was one English speaking home in the youth ministry that I led. And there was one home with a mother and a father in it. Sadly, they're now divorced. And there was um, uh, no white students in the youth ministry I led. And I'm a white guy from Nashville. Like a, I'm a white guy from a white place. And so I was a really unlikely candidate, but I discovered so much about Jesus through getting mm-hmm. found that ministry, led it for five years. And then I moved to uh, right across the river to Brooklyn and planted a church, uh, and mm-hmm. pastored that church for seven years. It's now called Oaks Church, Brooklyn, and got to hand that off to a successor to bounce over here to Bridgetown and and begin leading wow. here. So that's the that's the lightning round version of how I ended up here on this journey with Jesus.
2: I really appreciate it, man, and um, it's really it's really impactful for me to hear about that middle school, high school stuff. That's a big part of my story. Yeah, um, my youth pastor Ben Woodman encouraged me to pray my yearbook, mm. and uh, I remember going in the summer when I was 13 years old to my school praying. And I was just no telling someone today earlier, dude, it's crazy listening you get the to you. I'm like, story. I'm a, dude, it's wild. And I, I by rule don't try to talk very much about my story on this podcast because i'm here to talk to you and no one's here to listen to me but like dude i'm i'm really impacted because it was, it was such a formative part of my life and like i was just saying i was just talking with the lord about this morning like god i want to like love the lost like i did when i was a teenager mm. like he did something so deep in my heart and um, like i was self-righteous and reckless and all the stuff that comes with like a teenager on fire with Jesus. Like I had all those vices, you know, and struggles and, but it was so, it was so real, man. The sense of being a missionary to my school, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you would name that you were praying that prayer this morning of having that same longing and passion for the lost that you did at a young age, because a similar thing happened to me and it's kind of, it was one of the hinge points in my story as a pastor uh, you know, I planted this church in Brooklyn. I'm a few years into leading it. And I'm trying as hard as I can to pastor a sustainable church in a hyper-secular, massively intellectual, emotionally cold city with with good sermons. I'm doing everything I can to preach good enough sermons to pull this thing off. And it was going very mediocre. And then... Mm-hmm. um. And then I read this book called Red Moon Rising by a guy named Pete mm. Gregg about the beginning of the 24-7 prayer movement. And I was stopped in my tracks to discover that 24-7 and two other global really well-known prayer movements all started on the same day. And it was actually uh, it was the very year that I was prayer walking my middle school And and Mm -hmm. I began to wonder, you know, I wonder if God was calling people to the same thing at the same time uh, with this long range plan in mind. I wonder if this is a a massive part of his calling in my life. So then a couple months after that, I went back to the town that I grew up in where I didn't have any family anymore. Um, And this was 20 years after that middle school summer. And I spent New Year's Eve prayer walking around that same middle school um Mm. praying that god would do again in brooklyn what he had done there when i was 13 and that is the turning point in my life as a pastor um so there's there's a lot of counterpoints in our stories Mm. man
2: oh i love hearing about that man um i remember you saying something to the effect of god told me tyler You've used your 10 years, pastoring to show people you can follow Jesus really sincerely and pretty much live like everyone else. Now it's time to f- for a form of holiness that shows a more abundant life. Do you remember saying anything like that?
0: Yeah, yeah. I remember that season. I, I talked a lot of, to my community about um, if you want to overcome the or if, if you want to minister to the people of Brooklyn, you have to overcome the idols of Brooklyn. So I realized that the the same things that kind of had their teeth into the people that I was pastoring had their teeth into the people of the city that I lived in and they had their teeth into me. And the grip might have been to a different extent, but that was the truth.
2: And what was the response then? It was like a season of like, because I'm interested in this idea um, of, of like living a set-apart life on behalf of the people you lead. And I've heard you kind of speak to this. And I'd love just to kind of push into it a little bit more. Like, what did that look like for you? You talk about the teeth in, like, to, to like, uncouple or to go in an opposite spirit to those things. Talk to me a bit more about that.
0: Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll speak to it conceptually and then practically for what okay. it took like for me. So conceptually, I believe that at least I am called to prophetic leadership. And what I mean by that is not like sharing words with individuals, though I'm very into that, but I mean, order like incarnating in my life what I think the Spirit's next invitation is to the community that I lead. So I began to hmm. to wonder like, what is spiritual authority? You know, like, what, is it, what does it mean to have spiritual authority, not just to maybe uh, preach winsome sermons that are able to articulate ancient ideas in a way that actually can speak to the soul of the modern person, but what does it mean to speak words that have life and spiritual weight behind them? And what does it mean to be a threat to the darkness of the place that I live in? How do I become hmm. dangerous for the kingdom of God, basically? And, Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think it is about learning to rid oneself of the idols of a local place. So Mm. I am essentially always trying to listen to God and consecrate my life on behalf of the people that I minister to, or another way to think about it is intercessory fasting. Um, and, and so I, um, that's sort of the philosophical thing that I'm always asking myself right now. Our whole staff here at Bridgetown is in, we're in a staff wide consecration on behalf mm. of what we believe God wants to do in our church in January and February. And we're recording this in early December. So that's, that's mm. the way that I know how to lead. It's to let's take land in the spiritual sense and then invite mm. our people to come in behind us. And maybe a biblical picture or a motif of this is the crossing of the Jordan. You know, when 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 Israel crossed the Red Sea, it took one person, Moses, raising a staff, and then everyone got to participate in the miracle. When they crossed mm-hmm. the Jordan, uh, and, and it happened instantly, the Red Sea, the Jordan, they stood ankle deep in the water. God said, get one elder from each tribe. So, And then there's the Levites. So, you know, there's 12 plus people standing in the water, and it says that God's the water immediately was cut off, like he said it would be after they consecrated themselves and walked into the water. However, God cut it off several miles upstream. And I've often wondered how long they had to stand there in the water, ankle deep, looking like fools, until mm. the evidence of the miracle that had already occurred washed down with the river's current so that it was dry so everyone could cross. Does that make sense, what I'm describing? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. So, and so as a as someone who leads a staff team, I'm just always thinking, like, what's the next place God's inviting us to cross? Because there's land He wants us to take for His kingdom. He's jealously longing mm. for His creation. So let's consecrate ourselves and go stand ankle deep in that water and look foolish in front of our people, so that so that we can cross and inhabit that place together. Because everyone gets to participate in the miracle if if we're mm. willing to consecrate ourselves and risk foolishness, that he might do what only he can do. So that's the conceptual idea. Practically, what did it mean for me? It started as an individual thing. I felt particularly called into the Nazarite vow, which Hmm. is a way of fasting or consecrating that's detailed in Numbers chapter 6. Samson was a Nazarite in the Bible. Many people believe the prophet Samuel was a Nazarite. It certainly looks like John the Baptist was a lifelong Nazarite, and we know that the Apostle Paul took the Nazarite vow while he was in Corinth. So I um, became really intrigued about the Nazarite vow, did a lot of study on it. It's basically a three-part ancient fast that goes like this. Don't have any fruit of the vine, meaning don't drink any alcohol. And that also kind of took out sweets uh, in that time Mm. in history because... Everything got made from grapes or raisins. Um, and then secondly, it's don't cut your hair. So Nazarite didn't cut their hair, hence the long hair of Samson and the wild appearance of John the Baptist. And then lastly, a Nazarite didn't come in contact with the dead. And that is, is essentially, it seems like scholars agree, it's a three-part summary of the preparation that the high priest would do once a year for a set period of time to enter the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people. So mm-hmm. the Nazarite vow is a fast that is not about legalism. It's about symbolism. So it's basically a Nazarite is someone and different people would take the Nazarite vow in the nation of Israel throughout history. So it's essentially like you, you're you at the I don't know, you're at the market buying some lamb or whatever and some guy next to you happens to have a massive beard and super long hair um, and be avoiding the fruit section. And you would know, oh, that's a Nazarite. And so he had made his life into this visible symbol of God's covenant promise to Israel that his presence mm-hmm. would be with his people. And that's what set Yahweh apart from all the other gods. And so there's this, this symbolic nature to, to the Nazarites of, I will make my life a living prophecy. So everywhere mm. I go, everyone will be reminded of God's promises, not to me, but to us. That was the Nazarite mm. vow. And so I felt personally, this wasn't an idea I had. I felt personally called into it through multiple prophetic words. There were those kind of prophetic words where you're not like, oh, that's interesting. I want, but it's like I'm doubled over wailing kind of on the receiving end of these words. And Mm. so I, as I began to study the Nazarite vow, I realized that um, I don't, I'm not like a grape lover. um, And I'm not touching the dead very often as it is, you know? And so I took took the concepts these things represented and I updated them against the context that I lived in. And so I decided, I took a vow not to drink alcohol, And the reason for that is because of what alcohol meant to me and what it meant to the place that I lived in. So I I lived in a city, you know, New York is extremely, uh, like laissez-faire and European. It's probably a lot like Paris, maybe London. And so I never went anywhere that alcohol wasn't offered. And I had a, Mm. always, um a calculated relationship with alcohol, because there's uh, some ancestry of alcoholism in my family that I just wanted to avoid. Um, And that being said, I think I also had a casual relationship to alcohol, which was very common, not super abused or anything, but just very common. And what I noticed over time is that number one, I thought that alcohol was used as a coping mechanism by people in my city and mm. people in my church. And I didn't mean individuals. I just meant collectively corporately. And it was used by me as a coping mechanism because alcohol represented rest. So I, mm. I'd get home on a Friday night from a long week and make myself an old fashioned Cause I love whiskey, you know, or something like that. And, and that was how I was accessing rest. And I began, you know, rest is a promised byproduct of the spirit of God in our lives. And so I began to wonder, do I even know how to rest in the spirit mm. or a- am I trading something that God wants to give me through his spirit for something I can access in a cheaper way. And for me, it looks like this whiskey glass, even though I'm not abusing the substance, does it, it, does it hold, uh, is it shielding me from something deeper that God wants to give me? Mm. Um, and secondly, um, I, I didn't cut my hair. I stopped cutting my hair, but I also just decided that I wasn't gonna buy any clothing or anything for myself uh, when I was alone. So I didn't buy any food for myself, didn't buy a cup of coffee for myself, anything like that. Because the truth was that I had more than I could ever need. You know, like John the Baptist says, here's how you prepare for the coming of the Messiah. Anyone's got two cloaks, give one away. And so I, mm. I just realized, you know, I don't buy clothing for survival. I buy clothing for fashion. And, and so I want to, uh, rid myself of those appetites. And that also got into the, uh, touching, uh, you know, anything, don't come in contact with the dead. That wasn't a problem for me. Um, however, I did, uh, I made a list of things that I thought this is a neutral thing that only brings spiritual death to me. You know, there's a way to take Mm -hmm. neutral things in the world and connect the gift to the giver and then it actually brings life. Like I was using alcohol as an example. You can pour yourself a glass of wine and connect the gift to the giver. And then the drinking of a glass of wine on Sabbath becomes a spiritual discipline. So there's nothing positive or negative about alcohol. It's just how you relate to it. And there was a few things in my life that I just thought, this only brings spiritual death. This only, this is only distracting me. So like shopping was one of those things. If I if I decide I want a new jacket, then I get preoccupied with wanting a jacket that makes me look cool and makes other people think the things about me that I want to think of them to think about me when I walk into a particular room. And the truth is, is that it's just, it's just numbing my spiritual appetite, like a craving for mm. a deeper and more substantive life. So I'm going to take this vow and just give that up. And then I did that. Uh, I just decided to enter into that and I thought, God, I don't know if this is for a period of time. I don't know if it's forever, if I'm going to be a Nazareth for the rest of my life or what, but I... I just decided to start living by this vow and I did it secretly. I didn't tell anyone about it except my wife um, for a long, long time. And then I got a prophetic word from one of our elders about 320 days, a few months into this. And I thought, oh, that's God speaking to me about the length of the Nazarite vows, 320 days. And it was such a gift that he didn't tell me how long right away because I would have, I'm I'm really good at accomplishing goals. So I would have right. accomplished it. You know, I would have finished it. But instead, I lived that, got to live that season to the full. And, you know, the most beautiful thing happened as I was living that. I began to see the fruit that was coming in my life through it began to perk up in our community and a longing mm. for the appetites I was coming awake to become awake in the community I was leading. So that's where that whole idea comes from, where that whole season comes from. And I'm sorry if that was long winded. <laughs> I was trying to sum it no, up. No, I,
2: I, I appreciate it so much. I'm thinking a lot these days about our generation of pastors um, in their 30s, late 20s, early 40s, anyone though, listening. And there was a real reaction against like hyper-religiosity or like control and, you know, like teaching about drinking that's like no one can drink. It's like, well, obviously you're reading scripture, like, oh, this is hard to reconcile. And then it's like it became about the rules and, And I think there's been a big reaction off that, you know, and, and then there's the the side of it that's connected with mission, like how do we relate to culture and, and I I see all that and I see how much that's formed our generation of pastors. And I've just been thinking about the holiness and what it means to be set apart and, and feeling like I, I feel like we lack, um, vocabulary for it because even when I say holiness, that might trigger a ton of things for people, Mm -hmm. um, Or if we talk about these things, like I'm sure for some people it's a mixed relationship with what they just heard you say. Some are thinking, that sounds amazing. That sounds like a good program. I'm looking for a new program. Mm -hmm. Or other people might be saying, oh, that sounds religious. Like, you know, and want to know more details and religious in the negative connotation or whatever it might be. And I just think, oh, we actually lack a vocabulary amongst one another to talk about what it means for us to live holy, Mm -hmm. to to, to live set apart, but at the same time, not to put that unhealthy, destructive, non-gospel oriented pressure down on the people we lead or the peers. And I just wonder if you have any more reflections on what it means specifically as a pastor or just a disciple of Jesus to walk in holiness.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, every time I've ever spoken to anyone about this, I've just said like, I would not suggest that anyone do the Nazarite vow. I wasn't, Mm. I, I was doing so off of the spirit's invitation. To me, personally. Um, and now I drink. So uh, And like at one point, 320 days later, I got a haircut. There's actually in number six, there's a ceremony for breaking the Nazarite vow, which includes the shaving of the head of the Nazarite at the, like on the temple steps. So we had our, all of our elders and staff come to my home. And one of our elders shaved my head and they prayed over me. And then we toasted bourbon and it was lovely mm. it was so it was such a beautiful <laughs> celebration in the life of our church and i looked horrific with the shaved head it was really funny for a long time but i i think you know i would say the language i connect with is that of consecration because to consecrate yourself means uh to set aside for sacred use you know it's mm. the it's that there's common vessels in a house for common use there's wooden spoons there's And then there's sacred vessels for sacred use. You know, you're not using Mm. the china for any old meal. Like you're going to bust out that for the really fancy holiday dinner when you got your family together. And I just thought, I want God to set me aside for sacred use. Um, Mm. And so I think, while I don't think there's an earning with him, I think there is a partnering. You know, I think he works by way of invitation. And I think Jesus is primary way of teaching was an invitational style of teaching. You know, if you if you want to follow me, try it. If you want to know if my teachings mm-hmm. are true, put them into practice and see where they take you. And um, then I think I would also, let me think of how to put this. I, I would also say that the the primary pastoral work is your inner life. It's the primary pastoral work. And what I mean is, Living a consecrated life so that you are useful to God in a sacred way. And I also mean stewarding your imagination. Like mm. the pri- the first battlefield of the spiritual life is in the imagination. I have to gr- like root myself so deeply in the biblical story that I remember that this is the true story that I'm a part of, that I'm a part of a story where miracles happen and i am a part mm. of a story where i'm partnering with the spirit of god who is the paraclete the one who draws alongside to help and is at work from my inner being at all times and and the reason i need to root myself there is because i live in a world that tells an alternative story and and it mm. tells one that's really directly opposed but also just tells subtly alternative stories like the best thing that could happen this Sunday is if your service is pretty well attended and people seem to like the sermon that's an alternative story to the one that i read on the pages of scripture so i have to take on a biblical imagination in order to have the sorts of the, the expectations and the faith and the the vision for what god might want to do because i'm always the world or the flesh always wants to bring me back to things that are within my capability. Mm. And the biblical story tells a story that is beyond my capability. So I just say, Mm. as a, I think holiness means to attend to your inner life in a way that allows God to be at work within you in a way that's beyond your capability. And I don't know what that means for every person. And I don't know what it means for me six months from now, but I find that the spirit does give me one step at a time when I lay my whole life before him.
2: Hmm. I want to talk about um, the church as a people of prayer Mm -hmm. and what it means. um, I know it's a core value for you is to lead the church to be a praying people in the city in which it dwells. And i just love to hear your heart for that and how that's taking shape, how it did at Williamsburg and how it's taking shape in Portland.
0: Yeah. So... So when I was 13, I prayed around my middle school every day that summer and just interceded for friends by name, and I fell so in love with Jesus that by the time that summer ended, I decided to start a Christian outreach program in my public middle school, and I had to meet with the principal and then get a teacher sponsor to start this faith-based club, and That is not a great way to win friends and influence people (laughs) as a (laughs) 13-year-old. It did not help my popularity. And we started meeting in a math classroom at 6.30 a.m. on Wednesday mornings. And by the end of that school year, um, well, I, I will say this too. This was my entire strategy for how to run that club. I flipped the Bible to a random location on Tuesday nights and I would pick out a paragraph and I would read it and I would jot down on a sheet of loose leaf paper thoughts about what I, I thought that it meant, which was definitely heresy, like <laughs> definitely. <laughs> and then the next morning I would go and I would share those thoughts. That was the entire strategy for the club. The first meeting we had one person attended who I did not know. Mm. And we were meeting in this math classroom by the end of that school year. Um, it was the largest club in the school. It had moved into the school's theater and 10% of my eighth grade class had come to Christ through the early morning Mm -hmm. sermons of a 13-year-old skeptic. And the only explanation I have for that is that I became obsessed with prayer because I became obsessed Mm -hmm. with intimacy with Jesus. So I would go on Wednesday mornings to lead that ministry and I went on Tuesday mornings an hour before school to pray for my friends, and went on Thursday mornings, an hour before school to pray for my friends. And it was not because I thought that if I did, God would do what I wanted him to do. It's because I did, that's where I wanted to be. I wanted Mm -hmm. to be with Jesus alone in the early morning. And I knew his presence there, and I felt at home there, and I felt alive there. And I got to the end of that year, and I just thought, oh my goodness, God is real. And he actually is interested in my tiny little life. And he actually wants to make it useful for his kingdom. And I've gone through ebbs and flows in my faith, but that sense of wonder has never quite left. And then when I rediscovered that as an adult leading a church, I just thought, well, why don't we structure the church this way too? And I began to reread Jesus's promises about prayer. And they're, mm. ab- they're absurd. I mean, Jesus says... Over and over, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Some version of that, like 12 times towards the end of his life. If you read John 14 through 17, the amount of times that he comes back to on the final night of his life, the power that he's promising in prayer, it's wild. Mm -hmm. And so you can either try to take him up on the invitation Or do theological gymnastics to figure out why you're experiencing something less than what Jesus continually told you that you would experience if you're his disciple. Mm. And so I just thought, well, why don't we try to take him up on the invitation? And why don't I take risks with my church that allows God to be God to people and me to be me (laughs) to people? And so... The, the expression that that took on in our church, our particular context was through a prayer room and a daily prayer rhythm. And we can talk more about the practicalities if you'd like. But essentially the mantra that we began to believe and experience as a church is that fruitfulness is the collateral damage of intimacy. So mm-hmm. the, the invitation is intimacy with Jesus and fruitfulness comes out of that intimacy. So, you know, I think Mm. we often get it backwards. We go for fruitfulness, and then we substitute a byproduct of the relationship with Jesus for the relationship itself, and then we miss out on both. You know, we we become super passionate about justice, or we become super passionate about uh, worship, or we become super passionate about, I don't know, preaching, or this or that, or writing, and and it's like all those things. All those things are tangential to the relationship with Jesus, which is primarily experienced through prayer. So if we put prayer at the center, we become a people of justice. Because if you spend time with Jesus, he will take you to the poor. Because that's where he's always going. Mm-hmm. He He always went to the margins. And if you spend time with Jesus, then he will teach you to worship. Because that's what he's always, you know, he, he is ever connected to the Father. And if you spend time with Jesus, on and on and on. So that kind of became the heartbeat of our church is if we can keep prayer at the center, we can keep telling stories Mm. like the ones that we're telling. Um, we can keep taking risks like the ones that we're taking because the greatest miracle that happens in prayer. And what I began to witness play out in my life and in the lives of the people of my community over and over, and I'm seeing it now here in Portland is that the greatest answer to prayer is to become the prayer. And this is what God so often does is sometimes you pray for, uh, a lost friend or a cause or something, and God just answers it and you just spectate and you watch and it's amazing. It's Psalm five, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice before you and watch. But oftentimes what God will do is He will invite you to be a part of the answer to the prayer. And so if you're mm. if you're praying for the an end to hunger in your city then oftentimes God will invite you into a relationship with uh, a teenage boy whose family lives on food stamps alone and can barely make ends meet and has just enough to get by. And you get to participate in the kingdom coming in the very way that you're asking for. So Hmm. again, I'm sorry it's a ramble, but that's the summary.
2: I love it. Talk to me about some of the rhythms that... Take us to Williamsburg, some of the rhythms that you had in place um, around prayer, whether it's like fixed prayer meetings or uh, shared kind of rule of life stuff, stuff that you guys implemented around being a people of prayer.
0: Yeah, so we, um, the the end goal that we had in mind when it came to prayer is ordinary radicals. We wanted people to do things that if I told you up front, this is where we're going, people would be like, that is freaking nuts, man. There's no way I'm going to get there. Um, and, and so how you radicalize people, I think in a good sense, a biblical sense, the model that we have for that is marathon training, because I ran one marathon. I've run one marathon in my life. And yet the sermon illustrations just last a life. Come on. Yeah.
2: <laughs> you only have to do one. Yeah. And then it's, you're a someone who's done a marathon. Yep. The so. pain
0: is for a moment, but the sermon illustrations will never stop coming. So anyway, I, uh, he, here's what running a marathon is like It's good radicalization. So you, uh, you start with it. What, what you do is you have base runs and a distance run, right? So um, every marathon training plan is some version of this. Run five miles twice, run seven miles once. Next week, run six miles twice, run eight miles once. Next week, run seven miles twice, run 10 miles once. And it just goes on and on like this leading up toward race day until like your base run, the run that you're doing when you're just chilling out, you're not trying to stretch yourself, is like 17 miles. And you're going, you know, three months ago, this was four times longer than I've ever run in my life. And now I'm using it as a cool down. And what's happened is you've just inched a little bit more radical with every day over time. And so we had kind of the same plan for our church. So we created a base run and then distance runs. And our base run was what we called a daily Mm -hmm. prayer rhythm. And it was to reclaim the ancient practice of morning, midday and evening prayers, which we know historically was practiced by both Jesus and the early church. The best resource on that is the book Praying with the Church by Scott McKnight, I believe, um, where he lays out the history of how we know that the early church was living by this three times a day daily prayer rhythm. And then, so we created a daily prayer rhythm, and it had, uh, in the morning we would pray the Lord's Prayer, and at midday we would pray either the Shema or the Psalms, depending on the season, and then in the evening we prayed Gratitude, which was sort of a a light version of the examen. And we created an app that we gave, sent out to our congregation. It was super, You know, it was not, we had volunteers from our church that put it together in the spare time. So it wasn't amazing, but it worked. And so mm-hmm. what would happen is at 1 p.m., I would stop my work day and step away from my desk and take five minutes to pray the Shema. And I knew that someone was doing the same in a marketing agency uh, several miles away. And someone was doing the exact same thing at, you know, uh, a video shoot where there's like someone shooting a music video somewhere doing the same thing. Someone's doing the same thing at at a finance company downtown, all that kind of stuff. And that was a really powerful, formative thing that our churches got in the rhythm of. And we began to anchor our day by commun- communion with Jesus. Because everyone anchors their day by something. And it's shaping you, whatever it is. Mm. Whether it's meal times or alerts on your phone or your email inbox, or everyone marks the passage of time somehow, and we wanted to mark the passage of time by returning to intimacy with Jesus. And then we would take certain portions of the year, and we it was always, honestly, it was always in February and March, which in New York is the, the worst time of year. It's when you have the least options for doing fun things, and you're the most desperate for God, because the world is dark and cold, and you're wondering if spring will ever come. And... We started having a, hosting prayer rooms. Originally, it was in our church, and we got a storefront space in our city at one point, and people could sign up for hours, and we would pray. Uh, we would just pass the baton throughout hours, and we mm-hmm. created guides for how to spend an hour in prayer with Jesus for people in our church. And not only did we see prayers answered, that was amazing, but here was, here was a secret that I, I suspected as a pastor and discovered to be true, is that I would guess that probably 80 to 85% of people that were in my congregation at the time had never actually spent an hour in uninterrupted prayer with Jesus. Mm. And I was like, man, how can that be? (laughs) How can we close that gap? And so we created a space where people would go to and they took off their shoes outside the room because it was holy ground and we filled it with prayer for a month. And we had all different prayer stations in there and just all different ways to pray and a guide that walked someone through the Lord's Prayer over the course of an hour and how to spend an hour with Jesus. And, and there was incredible stories of fruitfulness, but the primary story that I always heard is people saying some version of, I always knew that I loved God or that at least I was supposed to love God. But what I discovered in the prayer room is that I like God. He's, wow. a, he's a great hang. i really enjoy his company um so that that's what the rhythms looked like in brooklyn and that is what the rhythms are coming to look like here in portland as well
2: i love that and you just got you stepped into a role with 24 7 prayer which is you know we're uh dory who leads 24 7 prayer in canada Mm -hmm. it's part of our community here and um my life was impacted even i remember being at a conference as a high school kid and like go into the 24-7 prayer room and there's a guy DJing named yeah. dan who i oh i love and uh but tell me about the work of 24-7 prayer in 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 the u.s and and what it means for you to step into this role
0: yeah in the u.s we're actually living by the same rhythms uh that i just mentioned so hmm. this is a shameless opportunity for me to say I have a book coming out on this stuff in October and an app through 24-7 prayer that allows churches all across the U.S. or around the world to live by this kind of prayer rhythm that I just laid out. And it looks like the incredible privilege of getting to lead not only a local church, but to see this local church, Bridgetown here in Portland, actually become that kind of prophetic life that I was talking about before and begin to take ground on behalf of the church in the U.S. and invite people to come and inhabit the land behind us. And Mm. that looks specific to prayer. So the rhythms that we craft and live by here at Bridgetown are not only incarnated by this one local community, but are incarnated by all sorts of communities all around the country that have docked in with this incredible 24-7 prayer movement that I'm so grateful Mm. to be a part of. So that's kind of, that's what it looks like.
2: I love it. Um, I think I saw a post about your new book. Is the title Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools?
0: That was the working title, but you know. My, I
2: love that title. My publisher. I love that title.
0: I don't know if they're going to let me keep it. They've cut some of the content that explains the titles. So, so we'll see. Oh, there's, there's several I on the table. I love that title. The first book, I've, I've written one other book and that book. They uh, they rejected my titles until they just wore, wore me down, and I was just like, "You guys just call it whatever you want. I just want to stop talking about this." <laughs> so I suspect they're planning on doing the same thing this time around.
2: Oh, I can't I can't wait to read it. Um, I have an interesting question. Sure. Um, we've been talking about inviting our congregation to pray. I know as a pastor how possible it is to be doing the work and for the very habits that got us into this to be eroded Mm -hmm. and to even feel like I don't even know where to begin. And uh, so I'd love to know what you think for the individual, pastor listening, who's saying, I want to take my church there, but if I'm honest, I got to go to that place on my own. Where do we begin? to pray and be with Jesus again. And I know it sounds so basic and we could probably all on our own right answer, but I love, you know, talk to me about it. Talk to, you know, I just love to hear what you think. Like, what does it look like to begin again to walk with the Lord?
0: Mm -hmm. You know, a question that I often ask myself is, God, would you show me where I am in the story? And what I mean by that is, will you give me a biblical picture for the life that you're calling me to incarnate, because I need an anchor. Um, I need a picture to live toward, not just a set of disciplines or practices. I need a picture, you know? We all live toward that. We all live toward a dream or an ideal or a role model. We all live toward some picture of who we want to become. And for me, I just have this vivid image in my imagination of David in the Valley of Elah, um, because, you know, that famous story of David and Goliath, it takes place in the Valley of Elah, and there's there's these two hillsides on either side of the valley. The Philistines are on one, Israel's on the other. And the Philistines are so sure of their power that Goliath's taunting Israel every day, saying, send a challenger, send a challenger. Israel is so afraid that they can't find anyone that will challenge him until this shepherd boy who's been out in the the wilderness, I would assume praying and songwriting, because that's what he seems to do all the time when he's alone, shows up and and says, I'll take him on. And he does so because his imagination has incarnated a biblical story with a really big God who is Mm -hmm. very interested in him. And then David goes into the valley and he has to choose five smooth stones from the brook. And the scripture doesn't say that he knelt down to get the stones, but Eugene Peterson points out that he probably had to because we know historically that there's no evidence he'd ever been in the valley of Elah before, nor is there any reason he would have been. So, this is not a brook he's visited before. And secondly, he's got to get stones that fit his sling from a creek. So, you know, you got to get down to do that. So, here's the picture there's on one hillside, you got the Philistines, on the other side, you got Israel. There's a valley in the middle. It's almost like on one side you got the world and on the other side you got the church and there's a valley in the middle and you've got the world so sure of their power uh, in the every new generation and you've got the church so afraid of every new enemy, wondering how they're going to possibly take them on or take them down. Yeah. And then you yeah. got a little boy on his knees in the most ancient posture of prayer in the middle. And it's a reminder. Both to the church and the world of the way God gets his work done. And mm-hmm. so that's what I want my life to be. I don't want to, I don't want to be thought of as an innovative thinker or, or a great teacher or anything. I want to be a little boy at prayer who's a reminder to the church and the world of the way God gets his work done. And if that is the image that I'm living toward, then it looks like prioritizing. An hour every morning before my children wake up to be with Jesus in prayer and mm. to be with Him in His Word. And I prayer walk uh, because that's one way I connect with Him. And I journal prayers or I sit in a particular chair, but I just listen for 10 minutes. That's my first practice. I don't speak, I just say, Holy Spirit, just that breath mm. prayer. And I set a mm. phone alarm for 10 minutes and I just wait and I sip coffee. And I keep my eyes closed and I keep my hands open on my lap and I just say, Holy Spirit. And sometimes there's a great little nugget that God speaks that guides my whole time with him. And sometimes there's nothing. But to be in relationship with someone is to learn to be silent in their presence. You know, like I don't have to be talking to my wife all the time. Because we know each other well enough mm-hmm. to be silent in each other's presence and it not be awkward and then I read the scripture and I ask God to speak to me before I speak to him and I pray the psalms every day I pray a, I live in a psalm for a week and then I move to the next one I live in that psalm for a week then I move to the next one and then I get up from my chair and I pray the Lord's prayer thematically as I take a walk around the park and I so I pray our Father in heaven God thank you that your father Thank you that you are Abba to me, that the one who painted the stars across the sky is also the one that invites me to climb into his lap. And thank you that you're not just my father, you're our father. And that means that everyone that I see today is brother and sister. Please help me to live like your story is true and that you really are pursuing every one of these children of yours like they are a child who's gotten lost and you are their loving father. Let me be a part of that. Hallowed be your name. There's no one like you, Lord. You know, it's like, it's just that. It's just to go through the themes of the Lord's Prayer. And I tend to spend the longest on your kingdom come, your will be done, because I think I'm an intercessor to some degree. And so I just spend a lot of time asking for God's kingdom to come. And I do that spontaneously and with a list. I know a prayer lists get oh. a lot of shade, but. I need to remember the big things I'm asking God for, and I need to cross them off when He gives them to me, because Mm. Psalm 138 says, you have answered my prayer, you have greatly emboldened me. So when God answers my prayers, it makes me pray bigger prayers, make me dream bigger for Him. And I cannot notice when God answers my prayers nearly as much as I wanted Him to answer them in the first place, at least. So I need the list. And so I... Every day I pray spontaneously for His kingdom to come, based on where my imagination's going. And then I pull out my phone, and I refer to the list that I've got on the notes app on my phone, and I say, "God, I'm asking you for this, and for this, and for this, and for this." So let Your kingdom come.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: and that's that's what those rhythms look like. And then I escape for five minutes in the middle of the day, like I was talking about before, and I return to that psalm that I prayed in the morning. And I pray it again as I go into the afternoon. And the reason that I do it that way is because uh, I am way better at intention than follow through. I intend so many things, but the afternoon is the time of day that tests my follow through. It's when I choose to be who I intended to be when I was awake that morning, but all the inspirations Mm. worn off. And, Mm. and, And so it's a different kind of choosing to live into the story. And then I, I cycle everywhere. So then I cycle home at the end of the day and I pray the exam and on the way home and I tell God everything I experienced that day. I tell him where I knew his presence most clearly and I tell him where I felt furthest from him and I pray one little intercession for the evening. And then I turn my phone off until my kids go to bed and I just am present with my family and totally undistracted. And I enjoy the gifts that God has given me and the people that he's mm. He's given me to live life with and the food that he's filled my fridge with and just all the common grace that I live in all the time. I try to enjoy it with him because I think that he delights mm. in that. And that's what my days look like. And I think that's what it looks like for me to try to live toward David in the Valley of Elah.
2: Mm. I really appreciate you taking the time to walk us through it and can't wait to read the new book. And thanks for, like, as you described, you know, consecrating yourself, taking on a place that people can follow and uh, really inspired by you and grateful for your friendship and for the work you're doing, man.
1: We hope this conversation with Tyler served to encourage you. Thanks again, Tyler, for taking the time to share with us and for the great work that you're doing on the back of a conversation like that, I, uh, I feel the need to pray for any pastors listening who feel like maybe you've lost some of the hunger for God that you had in your youth. In the same vein of what Tyler and Jason were talking about in their middle school years, I want to pray that God would deposit a fresh desperation for him to move, um, a fresh energy to, to pray more and faith that he will do something in your midst. Um, I don't know exactly what this looks like or feels like in podcast form, but feel free wherever you are, whether you're listening in the car or you're on a walk or you have this in the background while you're doing some work. uh, If you want to receive that kind of faith and that kind of desperation, uh, I'd love for you to agree in prayer with me. Father, we, we long for you to move in our country. We long for your kingdom to come for your will to be done for our nation from east to west god and north to south for it to look more and more like the kingdom of heaven god we want to see your church push back more darkness we want to see more people to be brought to life in you and father for the pastor listening who feels like their desperation for just that is waning i pray that by your spirit You would deepen hunger again, God, that you would grow faith, that any calluses or hardness in the heart would be removed, and you would form soft, compassionate hearts once again that are desperate for you to move. Come, Holy Spirit, we ask you to move on behalf of the one wanting to receive this for their sake, for the sake of your church, and for the sake of this nation. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, in two weeks' time, we are going to be sharing a conversation with Brandon Richardson. Brandon, alongside his wife Emma, is the lead pastor of Slate Church, which began in the Waterloo region of Ontario and has since grown into the greater Toronto area. The Lord is doing incredibly special things in their community. And Brandon is a humble and godly leader. So we're so excited to share that conversation with you. Well, that's all that I have for you today. Thank you so much for listening in to the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. We hope to see you soon. Bye for now.